Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Okay, welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Science, 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 science. I thought I would try that new echo effect that I just... I, it was I just actually you just saying the word science it, it over was, and over again. It was actually, there was no yeah. echo effect, was it? it, well, it's, it well, I, I, the effect was, I think, an echo. So <laughs> It was, it was it, effectively it, an it was, echo effect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very impressive. Uh, it is a big week, a uh, big month, a big year in science here at Lost in Science. Um... My name is Chris, as you probably gathered, and I am talking about science as applied to dentistry, all the things that your dentist um, doesn't tell you or perhaps does tell you that perhaps don't agree with scientific evidence. So I'm not going to have a go at dentists too much, but we're just going to look at some of the things that you're told regularly and whether they're... They hold up. Into Did you time go to, to the, the dentist last week? Is that what happened? No, we came out of a discussion at a at a barbecue the other okay. the other day, and uh, yes, we we. You'll you'll find out some of these some of these issues um, which, in a which moment. So stay tuned to us. That'll be very soon. Which tooth toothbrush do dentists use? It's not quite that, Stu. Okay. Um, Stu, what have you got for us? Speaking uh, of look, Stu, I'm going to be talking a little bit about evolution, um, but mostly talking about evolution in asexual organisms. So, oh, how does that even work? Well, yeah. to put it bluntly, things happen. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but they're not rude things because they're not no, asexual. No, but, yeah. but well, because there's, there's, you know, there's multiple aspects to how evolution works and one of them doesn't particularly rely on sexual reproduction. Right, okay. It just happens anyway. So okay. I'll, I'll explain that a bit further later on. But uh, it's, it's been observed for the first time that, that uh, there's, there's a particular kind of evolution happening in asexual organisms that's been theorised for a while but never observed and it's now been observed. Right. And I, um, I'm actually tackling quite a hot topic that's mm-hmm. been in the media quite a lot. It's the Zika virus. Um, you probably would have heard of it. Yes, um, it's in Latin, Brazil. Brazil, Latin America. Um, so I'm going to be speaking to Associate Professor Ian Mackay, who's a virologist at the University of Queensland, um, about the Zika virus, what it is, um, and the causal links between the Zika virus and the supposed effects and all that sort of stuff. So, And whether it's time to, pa- to panic, will you tell us that? Yeah. Well, he's he's got some interesting um, interesting views on that and maybe it is not yet time to panic as much as everybody is panicking. So, yeah, stay tuned. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science and I have a question for you. Something you've probably been asked when you if when you go to the dentist, if you go to the dentist, do you floss? Yeah, I do. You do? I do. Yeah. 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 But I don't floss every night. I floss no. maybe once every week. Okay. Do you feel good about your flossing? Yeah, I feel like I've won at life every time I floss. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm to- I'm on top of everything else. <laughs> I, I think I think I misunderstood because I just use fairy floss. I just like rub that between my teeth. Is that is does that it the just wrong kind of dissolve when you do that? Yeah, 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 yeah. slightly. Yeah, I'd reassess that if I were you. Um, <laughs> now, flossing is one of those things that, that dentists do to make you feel guilty. It seems like 
they, you know, they it's it's one of their centerpiece advice. Do you floss? You expect that question? Hang on, Chris. Yeah. Do you floss? I sometimes floss. Yes. <laughs> I um, have floss. I do have floss yeah. in the bathroom. It sits there. Oh, in the little look, box everyone has and, floss. You know. The, the, quest, the problem is that the evidence for actual flossing is not strong, shall we just say. Um, I'm not saying the dentists have been lying to us all this time. It's just that the, yeah, the evidence is not really good for the effectiveness of flossing. You're not, you're not um, saying that the dentists are in the pocket of big floss. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. And, well, part of this problem is that the evidence for a lot of dentistry is, like the actual, you know, look, compared to medical science, what we expect out of good medical evidence is not strong for a lot of dentist stuff. And that's probably because it's actually hard to do things like randomized double-blind trials when people know what you're doing to their mouth or they know whether they're flossing or not. But, um, yeah, people have tried to examine these things and the strength of the evidence is not good. Um, there was... A uh, there's one study in particular that's been quoted on this issue, which where they looked at essentially they looked at at kids uh, whether flossing helped kids like stop them getting tooth decay essentially. And what they found was that if they were basically had a professional floss their teeth every school day for 1.7 years, um, I don't know why 1.7 exactly, then that actually was gave the 40 percent chance, 40 percent less dental decay than they would otherwise. Um, but if they... Who's got a health professional lying around well, that's going to floss their teeth every if day? If they only had a health professional floss them every three months or they basically were left alone to floss by themselves, mm. there was no effect. Really? So this seems to suggest that, yeah, certainly if you're flossed every day by a professional who knows what they're doing, yeah, it's a good thing. But if you're just doing it yourself, perhaps not. And this is kind of a bit of a, a striking result when you consider... Um, What's a health professional doing that, that, like, where do they get taught how to floss? Well, and this is an interesting thing. I mean, when you look at a lot of kind of health interventions, things have to do themselves, you have to rely on people doing them properly. And sometimes it's not studied. You know, there'll be uh, doctors will look at the evidence for something and say, oh, this should work for this particular reason. But, yeah, if the people haven't been trained how to do it properly, Mm. then, yeah, they won't necessarily do it right. Look, other studies have found similar kind of lack of results for flossing. There's some other ones that... There's one particular um, review from the Cochrane Collaboration. They looked at a few different studies. They found that it was... There was some effect on benefit to gingivitis, which is like your, your gum disease. But for things like plaque and tooth decay and that sort of stuff, they found you know, no significant benefit of, of flossing. So, yeah, it's... um. I guess what I'm trying to say here is don't feel too bad if you're not keeping up with your flossing regimen because it's it's not necessarily all all that it's cracked up to be in that sense. It doesn't mean don't floss. I'm not saying don't floss because if you're doing it and you like it, then sure, that's fine. It doesn't seem to be any bad side effects for it. Uh, it gets bits of t- um, food out between your teeth. So, you know, it feels good, makes your teeth feel clean. It's just not necessarily going to prevent tooth decay is what the evidence is saying. I wonder if I wonder if the, the difference between doing it yourself and having a professional person do it is that you can't see what you're doing when you floss your own teeth. So if someone's actually doing it and looking in your mouth and going, oh, there's a bit of food there. I'll spend a bit of extra time there and get rid of that. And, you know, yeah. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me because there's literally no way you could look at your own teeth yeah. while you're flossing. Look, I've heard that it's to do with also the way that yeah, you hold the floss, perhaps. You know, I think the, the some people say, you know, you hold, you hold it kind of a C shape, like it sort of bends around the tooth more than perhaps you do when you, you do it yourself. Mm. But, yeah, it's, it's not quite known. And there are some alternatives to flossing. Um, there are some... Some studies, I found a few clinical trials that suggest that mouthwash may be more effective than flossing. This is like a couple of clinical trials. And again, they're probably not, 
I think they're probably not double-blinded trials. People will probably know if they're mouthwashing. Um, so maybe the evidence isn't strong there. But, you know, there are alternatives if you feel like the flossing isn't working for you. This, Like I said, this came up at a, at a barbecue the other day um, when essentially people were feeling guilty about not flossing and sort of I tried to set their minds at ease saying, look, there are other things you can do. Flossing ain't all that it's, it's meant to be. Ain't all that. It ain't all that. It ain't all that. But as I said, it's also one of the things that is a case with a lot of dental research because I try to look a bit wider, look at other other um, evidence, what it says for things. And yeah, such things as should you see the dentist every six months? This is, again, what they tell you you need to do. Again, there's not really good evidence for that. People have tried to study this question and found that there doesn't seem to be any particular benefit of seeing the dentist every every six months. Benefit to the dentist, maybe. Well, benefit to the dentist, maybe, absolutely. Um, also, toothbrushing. I couldn't find good studies on methods for, for toothbrushing. Um, in fact, I found this one particular study which talks about how there is a whole range of different things recommended by experts and there's no consensus on the best method of toothbrushing. So, you know, no one can say what is the best way to brush your teeth. Basically, the dental experts can't agree. Um, so you can just go by what the old toothbrush family cartoon taught you how to you do. Can, you can do that if you want. Like there, was, um, there was one study, this is basically a study from 2014, where they surveyed or they looked at a whole lot of dental literature and they looked at what they, people recommended. Um, the most common was used was the modified bass technique, which essentially has the toothbrush at a 45-degree angle to kind of the gum line and little circles on each tooth, followed by a swipe down. That's kind of the modified of the bass technique. Um, they also had... A few others make into the phones technique, which is that one is you hold your teeth together and it's like big circles on the clenched teeth. I love that you're practicing this in front of us. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. It's, can, it's a visual medium. Um, the scrub <laughs> technique, which is pretty much what it sounds like. Um, oh, yeah, that sounds like what I do when I brush my teeth. Yeah, so look, that's, again, there's not really good evidence for that. Um, there's no evidence necessarily that um, brushing between your teeth, like trying to brush, get a toothbrush to go between your teeth, does anything good for in terms of um, preventing dental disease. Um, there is some good evidence that electric toothbrushes are better than non-electric toothbrushes, so that is something you can take away from science. Except when they run out of batteries, then it, they turn... They turn into a into non-powered toothbrush. Very useless yeah. normal toothbrush. Look... I guess the upshot of this is, uh, you know, do do listen to your dentist, but don't feel stressed if you're not doing all the things that that are, you know, like the flossing and seeing you every six months. Because I know a lot of us fail on those things. Um, it's not something a bit to get panic about and feel really guilty about. Uh, you should, of course, listen to professionals rather than to some some fool on the radio like this. All I'm just telling you is what the the published uh, research says, and, and also that there's an opportunity out there for some dental science to happen. Absolutely, there is a lot of room. When you read all these studies, you get a bit sick of seeing people saying people should really do some research into this. <laughs> and yeah, someone should do some research. Into this. And presumably, there's a lot of money in in dental health so surely someone can afford to to fork out yeah. to do this research you think Colgate. it's worth it get, yeah get your act together. that's Coral right Bay? what are they doing <laughs> that's right um they need tech. A... <laughs> mclean's yeah yeah all those guys yeah get your act together <laughs> clean up Most people are probably aware of the concept of evolution and how that applies to biology, which is where organisms change over time as a result of accumulating beneficial traits over generations. And then naturally the 
most successful ones are selected, which is yeah, based on yeah. the environment. Yeah, yeah, the environment that they that they live in. So one of the main drivers of evolutionary change is mutation in the genes of organisms over time, which is amplified in the population by sexual reproduction, because then individuals mm. can share their uh, their mutations. Yeah, mixing around and matching yeah. fairly. But um, I mean, <laughs> obviously, you get things like bacteria evolving their own their own ways, you know. Well, that's right. Mutation still happens regardless, but it's sort of it's amplified in a population yep. by sexual reproduction because yep. you get recombinations of the same of different genes with yep. um, different effects. So, during reproduction, genetic material is com- contributed by two individuals to make a new one with characteristics of both parents. Um, but obviously, there are organisms that don't produce in a sexual way, they reproduce asexually. Mm-hmm. So that happens when an ed- individual more or less clones itself to produce mm. what should be an identical copy. Um, so there's no meiosis, which is when you get variant copies of chromosomes uh, being produced, only mitosis, which should make exact copies of chromosomes. For those of you playing at home who could never remember the difference, mitosis was... Okay, so if you do have trouble remembering the difference between meiosis which has got an E in it, and okay. mitosis, which doesn't. Uh, I always remember that sex has an E in it, and division doesn't. So oh, meiosis has one. an E in it, yeah. like sex. Mitosis doesn't have an E in it, like division. Yeah, okay. Works for me. Certainly got me through a few exams in my time. <laughs> so back to the asexual organisms. Do they evolve at all? So obviously they do. Mm. Um and they still have around about s- the same rate of mutation as sexually reproducing species, but it can't spread laterally into a population, so it's confined. Because they're only ever going down one linear yeah. path. Yeah, it's a, mm. it's a hierarchical, uh, it's a descent. Um, so selection can still favour particular versions of genes. So if one, you know, one little bacteria has a better version of a gene than the other ones around it, then it will have more success in reproducing or it will yep. access food better or whatever and will reproduce at a higher rate. It'll just take over. Yeah, that's right. It will outcompete all the other ones so there'll be more of those of that version of the gene. So in organisms where chromosome pairs exist, like in plants and animals and many single-celled organisms, uh, it was proposed that each part of the chromosome pair could evolve separately. So this has been an idea that's been around for a couple of decades now. This is called the Meselson effect after Matthew Meselson, who's a biologist who has been studying asexual organisms for about 60 years, uh, in order to identify the biological advantages of sexual reproduction. Right, okay. So he's looking at organisms that don't sexually reproduce to figure out why organisms why go to all the to. bother of trying to find mates and okay. all all the you know the potential risks and losses that you can have by uh, involving sexual reproduction. Um, Matthew Meselson is actually pretty important in biology. He helped discover the property of DNA to be fractionally conservative, which means that for every uh, it retains an original strand for every new one created during cell division. So one strand is kept in each DNA helix, and one is a new one. He actually figured that out and demonstrated it. Wow. Um, So they actually did that by growing E. coli bacteria. They grew it in two different isotopes of nitrogen that has different weights. Yep. And then they used a 
centrifuge, a very precise centrifuge to centrifuge out the different fractions of oh, DNA so with different uh, heaviness of yeah. nitrogen attached to it. So, yeah, really clever experiment and came out perfectly exactly what they're expecting. So the weights increased at, increased at the exact fractions they were looking for. He also uh, discovered messenger RNA, which is what carries information from the DNA strand to the enzymes that build proteins in cells. Wow, he's so discovered quite. If a you've lot. never heard of this guy, yeah, he's pretty important in modern, uh, you know, microbiology anyway, uh, and genetics. Uh, but back to the asexual organisms. So for the first time, uh, someone's actually observed the Meselson effect in a living organism out in the world. Uh, it's a parasitic organism called Trypanosoma brucei gambiens. Is that some sort of liver fluke or that kind of thing? It is from Africa, which the name gambiens might give you a clue because yeah, yeah. it was first found in Gambia. actually causes African sleeping sickness. Ah. Oh, named after a guy named Bruce? Well, I'm sure Bruce had something to do with the naming at some point. But yeah, so this, this parasitic organism causes sleeping sickness that's spread by the tsetse fly, mm-hmm. um, which was very common... Uh, device in terrible sitcoms of the past. I used to, it used to pop up in all sorts of things. People would suddenly fall asleep and they'd go, "Ah, oh, the tsetse fly." But anyway, also also believed to be the reason that the um, the zebra has evolved stripes to avoid getting bitten by things like the tsetse fly. Okay, um, so strains of the organism were collected from different parts of Africa and collected over fifty two years um, and compared to each other. And they clearly show that chromosomes present in each strain were different, but had descended from a common ancestor 10,000 years ago. That's an estimate, obviously. But they're tying this in with the introduction of cattle farming to Africa. So the tsetse fly was always around. Mm, Not biting zebras. Well, it did used to bite zebras, Mm. but then someone brought cattle along and they bit the cattle. And in the cattle, they think that the parasite mutated in the cattle and then became able to infect humans. I see. Oh, where it wow. hadn't been able to do that before. So the cattle was like a stepping stone to, to being able to infect humans. So the thing about the lack of recombination uh, means that organisms like this should die out. They're not very good at adapting to new situations. They do mutate, as I said, because they've, you know, they've obviously mutated to be able to mm-hmm. infect people. But they're not very adaptive because they can't share successful genes between different yeah. strains. So if, a, if if conditions change and a particular strain can't cope, it just dies out completely yeah, you very quickly. You don't get to hold on to that genetic material that might be beneficial in a couple of generations. Yeah, or share it around or with, share it around, with yeah. other strains. So um, the benefit, I mean, in this case, uh, this parasite should die out over time because it won't be able to adapt because it can't share genes. Um, but... And that's probably a good thing for sleeping sickness because it's quite detrimental to people who live in areas where it's prevalent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's no way to know when that's likely to happen. It's just um, they they know that it will eventually happen with this particular parasite, but this might be you know another ten thousand years before it sort of mm-hmm. gets beaten. And and okay. but it, it does mean it does mean that with things like this, they can uh, work on finding simple cures because it's unlikely to develop multi-resistance okay. because mm. it can't share genes between the strains. So um, it's a good thing to know, and it's the first time it's ever been observed, and that was just sort of published this month in a journal called eLife, if you want to look it up.
across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. You're listening to Lost in Science. Now, as you've probably heard, Latin America is currently experiencing an outbreak of a new virus, the Zika virus. To talk to us a bit about what that virus is and what we know about it, we have Dr. Ian Mackay, who's a Associate Professor and Virologist at the University of Queensland. Welcome, Ian. Thank you very much for asking me. My first question is, what is the Zika virus and where, where does it come from? Zika virus is what we call a mosquito-borne virus. It's a virus that we can only get from the bite of an infected mosquito. And it was first uh, learnt of from an infected monkey, in fact, in the forest in Uganda. And that forest was called the Zika forest, so that's where the virus gets its name from. That was found back in 1947, so we've known about this virus for quite a long time. So it isn't as new as we've been led to believe. No, there have been some that have said that it's a newly emerged virus, but it isn't. It, it has been around for a long time. Um, it's just been travelling quite slowly until fairly recently, from about two th- 2007 onwards, it really started to take off, especially in the Pacific and around the Pacific, and it spread slowly until it got to Brazil, where it seems to have exploded. What are the really dangerous effects of this virus? Why, why is everyone talking about it? Well, they're mostly talking about it because of an unproven link with a disease called microcephaly or microcephaly, depending on which dictionary you read. This is a disease of babies that are born with heads that are smaller than the average, and that's because of uh, problems with the development of their brains. Now, people are suggesting that this is caused by previous Zika virus infection in the mum, mm-hmm. but there is yet to be any kind of link actually proven. Lots of work starting to take off and look for this, but what we're seeing is, is an explosion of this particular disease, um, microcephaly, in Brazil in particular, and also at the same time this epidemic of Zika virus infections going on in Brazil. People are lump, uh, jumping the gun a bit and saying, well, these two things must be linked, but we've yet to find that sort of scientific proof that will really tell us that that is the case. Usually, though, Zika virus infection is fairly mild. We can get a rash, we can get a bit of joint pain, headaches, a fever, um, and perhaps a bit of conjunct us um, sort of red and inflamed eyes. But other than that, not much. And that's been the case, as far as we've known, since 1947 up until really just last year, 2015. I also heard that there was, maybe in the Pacific, um, a link between the Zika virus and another sort of health effect? Yes, so that's called, and pardon my uh, pronunciation, but Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's a, a disease that is really a, an autoimmune disease. And that seems to have a little bit of a stronger link, although we're still trying to find some data to strengthen that properly, between previous Zika virus infection and the onset of this uh, disease. And that can lead to uh, a fairly severe condition as well, sort of paralysis and even trouble breathing sometimes. So that is also a link that's being explored but hasn't been proven yet. Right. And the current outbreak in in Brazil um, hasn't shown any link between that immune disease and the Zika virus? There has been some talk about that as well. Okay. Um, but again, we're, there's, there's really a lot of information flowing out, but it's in bits and pieces from, uh, from Brazil. So we really need some more information to understand what the numbers are, whether those numbers truly are different from the number of cases Brazil or any other country would normally see of either microcephaly or, or Guillain-Barre syndrome. And that sort of information is still a little bit loose and, and they're doing some work to try and tighten that up. So possibly people are jumping the gun a little bit by assuming a causal relationship. Absolutely. There's a lot, of, a lot of assumption going on at the moment and as much as it is a good idea because there, is, there does seem to be an increased case number of microcephaly cases, it is a good idea to let 
uh, mums-to-be know this, of course, that, that, that has to be done. Jumping the gun to going the next step and saying, well, it's because of this virus, well, that hasn't been proven yet, so that work really has to be done to, to make that association real or not. Can you tell us a little bit about the transmission of the Zika virus? I understand it's the same or a similar mosquito to some other viruses that we might be more familiar with. Yes, so the main uh, mosquito that carries this virus is called the Aedes aegypti mosquito, and it, it's also known for carrying viruses like dengue virus. Uh, uh, yeah. And so in these areas where we're seeing uh, an outbreak of Zika, we're also seeing the usual transmission that goes on of dengue and also some other viruses like yellow fever virus and chikungunya virus, which can cause similar rashes and joint issues. They can be a bit more severe, though. So those mosquitoes, we have a few of in, in Australia, mostly in North Queensland, but to our knowledge, they don't have this virus in them. So at the moment, Australia doesn't have you know, Zika virus cases. However, we do see some travellers come to Australia, as every country in the world seems to be seeing, uh, that are infected. They've been infected elsewhere, either in the Pacific or in Brazil and South America or, or even in Africa. And they come here already infected um, and can uh, be, de- be detected and identified here. Would that mean that any country that has the Aedes aegypti mosquito would be susceptible to the Zika virus as they are susceptible to the other mosquito-borne diseases and viruses? As far as we know, yes. Um, And there are some other members of the Aedes group of mosquitoes that may also transmit. That that work is still uh, being done as well. So it is theoretically the case that we can host the, the virus if it were to come here, but it would have to come in an infected traveller. It would have to be taken up by in a mosquito that fed on that infected traveller, and then we'd have to start seeing that sort of outbreak situation happen, and so far we haven't seen that. In your opinion, what are the best protections that we have against the Zika virus, but also other mosquito-borne viruses now and in the future? The best protections are probably common to all of those, and that's trying not to be bitten by an infected mosquito. So wearing... Um, Appropriate clothing, if the area does have infected mosquitoes, you'd like long sleeves and, and long pants to prevent yourself being bitten, which obviously isn't all that comfortable in the heat, but yeah. that's the best way to go. Also using bug repellents that have DEET or Picardin in them, things that are known to repel mosquitoes is a good idea. If you live in an area where these things um, are a problem, you need to sleep perhaps under nets or make sure your house has screens and, and doesn't let uh, mosquitoes get in. But for Zika, it's also worth noting we don't have a vaccine. We don't have um, an antiviral drug it's really just a case of trying to avoid being bitten. And for the future, for, from a public health perspective, do you see science, scientists going down the vaccine path or um, you know, trying to eliminate mosquitoes from the environment? What, where do you see the research going? A bit of both, a bit of everything, I guess. Um, it will also depend a little bit on how this link with microcephaly goes, which is a severe disease and it's a disease for life. If that link firms up and is real, I think we'll see a lot more resources poured into getting a vaccine together for Zika. If not, then perhaps that won't happen. We'll have to keep an eye on on how that goes. Um, Certainly eradicating mosquitoes from areas, making sure they can't grow, making sure there's not pots of water for mosquitoes, larvae to breed, and that's all very important and will be ongoing as well. And there are some interesting little... Uh, approaches to that using genetically modified mosquitoes or, as in Cairns and Townsville, infecting mosquitoes with a bacterium to make sure they can't uh, have fertile eggs. The Wolbachia bacteria, is that the one that's in um, Cairns and Townsville? That is exactly the one, and that seems to have been a very effective measure for knocking down mosquitoes and stopping them breeding. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Ian. Now, if people want to know a little bit more about virology and have updates on the Zika virus, Ebola, avian flu and other disease-causing agents, you can actually read up on Ian's blog, which is called Virology Down Under.
Is that right? That is right. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a bit of a hobby, but I try and keep up to date with some of the, the more important outbreaks or interesting outbreaks that are going on at the moment. Wonderful. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Okay, that is it for another episode of Lost in Science, where we have heard about the asexual reproduction of the sleeping sickness parasite. We have heard about another tropical disease, the, the Zika virus um, spread by mosquitoes. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And flossing probably won't stop you getting these diseases. But hey, you know. The scandalous lack of scientific research. That's right. That's why. What do you call this scandal? I think we should call it Colgate. Yeah. Yeah. Not that we're pointing any fingers at any particular corporations that may choose to sue us, I guess. Um, no, it's, it's a joke. It's, it's a joke. It's, it's genuine joke. satire. It is a genuine satire, yes. Um, now, Lost in Science. It is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, it's across Australia, and the Community Radio Network, the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, you can email us at lostinsci, that's L-O-S-T-I-N-S-C-I, at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter, or you can find us on Facebook, or you can find us on the radio, where, once again, every week, Claire, Stu, and Chris get... Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.